before we begin, share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your questions and feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com and support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypal me slash Raul Guerrero Jr. I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystoblicans, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the afternoon of October 9, 1998. In Myronbury, La Grande Lanuda, its Danish Fair Mall, with a hive of parked high-end cars, hopnobbing formalists, opulent shops, and fine eateries, an upbeat longing for dreams of death jingling in the background. In a beauty parlor, its advisors presented to three women their end products. From dark auburn hair tip to gloss gold flat sole, Dina Melio relished her magnetic face, intense posture, and eloquent attire. Next to her, Eileen Pruna, fell in love with the immaculate meshing of her honey French braid and accoutred casuism. To her right, Blythe Resende adored how on fleek her hair's light ash and dress's preppiness was at blending her in with her fellow woman. Their respective boyfriends, Windsor de la Rosa, Keller Duran, and Norwood Jimenez drowned them in flattering remarks that drew them like the supermodels plastered on the billboards of Delgadopolis's Denier Cree Plaza. Their bannerous bouquet took them back to a much brighter point in their lives. That point walked them on its sprightly, edifying, bullish, and ingenuous air. While their hearts still housed its qualities, how they evinced then differed to their manifestations now. Outraged by their plaudits, the other patrons and advisors rudely suggested that their far-right scummy behinds keep their depraved fantasies to themselves. The three couples took their suggestions as snot-filled, food-particle-ridden spits into their mouths. Dina called them puppets and fools who were living the lie that their excuse for a president, Sinclair Palacios, spoon-fed them. Eileen couldn't understand why working people like them would revere a corporate anus-shagger like him. Blythe knew 
without asking them that Sinclair hadn't done a single darn thing to better their lives. Windsor reminded them that Myronbury would be a dead loss without the money its people inherited from the former regime. Keller called them out for denouncing the very man who handed them their callings and prosperities. Norwood hounded them for being complicit in stripping the Bromelian people of their pride and dignity. Irate with his accusation, the manager ordered him and the others to pay up, get out, and never come back. The six found that order chucklesome and pathetic, humoring Dina to hideously and contemptuously conclude that they've been corrupted by liberalism. The manager repeated the order, giving them five seconds before calling security. Her count down to three got the six to comply, but not without hoisting high the despotic fist that was the Yellow Cross salute on the way out. That barefaced jester rose the fumes the food in their gorges emitted up to their uvulas and tonsils. Dina, Windsor, Eileen, Keller, Blythe, and Norwood hung out and drank frappes as a wolf pack. They closely and affectionately watched the high school kids distinct their handshakes gush over their alluringly preppy appearances, exchange romantic advances and banter about dainty, sultry models without let-up. But then the six spotted a clicky sextet they knew deep-seatedly. Candida, Brumel, Catalino, Aragon, the six, Yamile, Cleín, Regulo, Fonton, Farinia, Barnez, and Lisandro, Rayed. Their teenage familiars haughtily disparaged, pushed around, and glared at the other cotteries for their inferior genetics and social positions. Those assertions endeared the six and made them well pleased with how thoroughly their words and actions have done their work. On a self-loving high, Dina called Candida via the mobile phone she gave her for her most recent birthday, instructing her and the others to meet her and her friends at the Loicon Rinola for quality time. Quality, precision, and passion caressed the fabrics, plastics, liquids, balms, and metals that sparkled the department store from entrance to exit. In the bistro upstairs, the two groups of six ate fancily and drank exquisitely. Dina asked the teens how their college applications were doing, aggressively injecting them with the fear of the Lord. Speaking for her group, Candida stated that the six of them have enrolled into the University of the Capital via early decision. From her to Lisandro, their intended disciplines were political science, psychology, philosophy, computer science, film, and economics. The same majors Dina and her friends respectively held degrees in. Windsor had them thank him for suggesting the schools and majors they selected. 
Eileen was certain that the teens would have no trouble getting accepted. Keller grinned at how great his hours of torturously tutoring them paid off. Blythe was proud to know that her recommendation letters made the teens a cut above the rest, and Norwood saw to it that the university gave every one of them a full ride, and then some. Academics aside, the elder group of six found warmth in the sizable influence they held over their teenage studies, feeling the weight of showing them who they really were, how they came to be, and where they ought to go. As for those studies, they loved their Vicinarian elders dearly for raising their self-esteem and wills to succeed from the dead. Dina snapped a photo with Candida, shaping their sharp-cornered, fierce and shadowy looks that laid their true darknesses dormant. Windsor and Catalino took a picture that highlighted their bright, disc-shaped and gentle features. That excited Eileen and Yamile into flashing theirs, shining their broad, horse-like and well-matured shapes. The shot Keller and Regulo snapped together poured out their slender, delicate, and self-effacing complexions. Blythe and Varinia's turn under the camera's lens brought out their well-balanced, heart-shaped, and curvy forms. And lastly, Norwood and Lisandro had their right-angled, refined, and bull-like qualities snapped in one flash. They hugged and kissed in pairs, trios, and so on, paying the tab, generously tipping their waiter and walking out in concert, unaware of the missed calls Gandida garnered from her father, Habsburgo VII, mother, Jacinda, and brother, Habsburgo VIII. Dina called a limousine to take Gandida's friends home and told her friends to wait for her in their silver navigator, Sheen Candida requested that they have some time alone with each other, a demand neither Windsor, Gadalino, nor the others took any issue to, knowing the cultural custom those two wanted to indulge in. Moreover, they knew Dina and Candida would react as acceptingly when the time came for the pairs they were a part of to get stuck into that custom, Windsor and Catalino, Keller and Yamile, Eileen and Regulo, Norwood and Varinia, and Blythe and Lisandro. Dina held Candida by the hand and led her down to an intimate, dimly lit floor of small rooms that look as though they've been idle for some time. They occupied and locked themselves in a room feet from the stairs to the mall's parking garage. Dina picked Candida up like a toddler and pinned her against the wall. They made out, fondled, and undressed, crazier than monkeys, hangry for bananas. Candida submitted enthusiastically to Dina, pleasuring her orally and digitally. In return, Dina passionately and aggressively scissored away her virginity. Her friends garrulously 
escorted Candidas to the mall's front entrance, where their limo waited directly in front of. Just feet shy of opening the door, their talking took a somber turn, where Candida's friends were advised by Dinas to keep her and each other, or else they'll succumb to villainy, mediocrity, iniquity, and degeneracy. That advice sank the teenagers' walks into the limo in a silent reflection that presented them the ancestors who shared their last names. Having studied them extensively, they imagined themselves in their bodies, feeling their justice and loving every second of it. Their ride in the limo put them in a mode that would define their lives' last verdicts. Meanwhile downstairs, minutes were all it took for Dina and Candida to achieve their hot, sticky climaxes, screaming in victory as they sprayed out. The cuddling plop to the floor shook the door into swing open, thanks to its latch and dead bolts being too short for the strike plate's holes. That close hold returned their lungs to normal, cooled their sweat and wet mess. The whole new world Dina took Candida to had her beside herself with joy, and Candida giddily raised her fists up high at the age she came to. For both of them, the times of their lives were in their grasps until they saw the fuming, quiet, heating Candida's family, scaring her witless and leaving Dina open-mouthed. She and Candida stood their naked selves up like blazes in time for Jacinda to wildly try pulling her daughter over to her side by force. Losing her temper, Dina grabbed, cocked, and aimed her pistol at Jacinda, staggering her, Habsburgo VII and Eighth. Told by her to unhand Candida if she valued her life, Jacinda let go of her girl at that very second, joining the males in having their hands where she could see them. The control Dina had over their lives were Damiana flowers to her nasal cavities. She strikingly called on Candida to come back to her, adding that no longer was she bound by her so-called family's dishonorable nest. Candida felt her arms tug left toward her and right in her loved ones' direction, trapping her in an upsetting bind. Habsburgo Seventh angrily asked Dina what a hellcat like her effing knew about honor, given where she came from, hitting her right where it hurts. That low blow enraged her into shooting at the ceiling straight above him, his wife and son, alarming and stinging them with her bullets' shards. The rage darkening Dina's lower deeply froze him and Jacinda all the way to their bone marrows. She screamingly told Habsburgle to leave those two the F out of his mouth. His son derisively grinned at her clenched open mouth and heavy breathing, asking her if mentioning those two bastards was the big no-no. Candida anxiously screamed Dina out of engaging her brother, begging him to shut up. 
that brother of hers took her to task for condemning him and their mom and dad to having Dina in their lives. Candida sneered at him by saying she wouldn't have needed Dina had he and their parents been better for her than she was. That remark stunned them silent, presenting them the indefensible things they said and did to her. Candida walked over to Dina and enfolded her, scornfully yet hurriedly scowling at Jacinda, Habsburgo VII, and Eighth without thinking twice. Her move repulsed Habsburgo VII, destroyed Jacinda, and maddened their son, but had Dina laughing gleefully. She thumbed her nose at Candida's herders for having the audacity to hoist themselves heroically. Dina had her ways in finding out all the acts of cruelty they carried out in the name of Roy Sr.'s supposed revolution. The denials the three blasted her with were immediate, vehement, and troubled. To Candida, how those rebuttals looked and felt gave off smells of guilt, sickening her into disowning them and declaring Dina as her family now and forever. Adding insult to injury, Dina advised that they go away and move on with their unpunished lives. She warned them that if they told anyone about what happened tonight that she'd have them all murdered slowly and painfully dismembered like pigs and fed to the wolves like raw pork fillets, banging their bodily freezes well below zero and gratifying Candida as her ex-family silently tottered away. Realizing the choice she couldn't come back from, Candida perturbedly got Dina to swear on her clan and bloodline to love her unconditionally and not abandon her. In return, she promised to never question her and satisfy her every whim. They put their clothes back on and rejoined Dina's friends. Keller asked her why Candida was riding along with them. Dina explained that Candida left the menage that had dampened her spirits for 18 years, and that she'll be in theirs from now on. That excited Eileen opened Windsor's mind and kept Blythe indifferent, but didn't lessen Keller's dubiety and aroused Norwood's mistrust. No matter the sentiment, Dina had every intention of upholding what she swore to and hoped that Candida felt Likewise, their trip up the North Shore Highway passed them by suburbs that were undergoing construction or repairs. It helped the six remember the desperation their lives were trapped in just a few years earlier. The minute they crossed the Habsburgo River was when agrarian Brumelia reared its pastoral head. That head-rearing evoked curiosity and intrigue in Candida, having seldomly left the eyesight of the pedantic bubble that birthed and brought her up. She pinned her hopes on her new living situation, giving her a life free of shame and baggage, and hankered for the day 
her besties can have the courage to join her in that fresh start. The moon's darkness fell over Usalga, a small town nestled beside the North Rodelbru Highway intersection, where a massive processing plant sat well hidden to its southeast. Mobile homes, duplexes, trailers, RVs, and tough sheds filled the town's residential streets. In one such mobile home's living room, the Six and Candida had their daily doses of Brumelian television to her amusement and their repugnance. Their TV played white clouds moving in back of and on by a red barn with its picket fence, silo, and crowing rooster. It showed rugged farmers proudly crossing their arms at the sunset. The TV panned back around the green grass, hay wheels, and pigs roaming free, and it faded to a country store where a farm girl dressed, Dina, tells viewers to buy their pork at Nor Lanuda Farms because it's the purest pork in all the land. That slogan disconcerted her into shutting the TV off, making her blush and concealing her face in her square palms and long fingers. Windsor rubbed his pity onto the back of Dina's neck as Eileen, Keller, Blythe, and Norwood quietly looked on compassionately. Those reactions puzzled Candida, who thought that Dina looked scorching hot in the tied-up, twilled shirt, Daisy Dukes, and black boots hugging her tall, slim body. She asked her why the long, pink face and what was so wrong about the farm showing off its wholesome little operation. That ignited Dina's unsettledness and wetted her friends' faces sharper than rattlesnake fangs. She angrily stomped over to Candida, about to unleash the most vigorous of all reprimands, when the oath she swore to reduced that release to a petulant deep breath. Though her friends were highly irked by that reduction, they hid their displeasures in their minds in fear of being rebuked the way Candida almost was. Dina presented her a VHS video that animated Norla Nuda Farms with pencils very different from the ones used in the commercial. The farm had a feeding operation that packed its pigs in feces and urine-ridden dirt lots with corn-feed troughs for fences. Its ginormous assembly line slaved the workers at a pace that matched the machines moving the pork cuts to their packaged scent-offs. The blood, urine, and feces they're drenched in hurt Candida like a young girl who's had her innocence taken prematurely. A cold hard floor packed the hogs in its frigid boundary tighter than hunks of meat in a vacuumed seal. Its machine forcibly jammed them into itself loudly weird and clanked as they squealed in agony and pushed their motionless carcasses on out. The sheer ugliness of it all crazily threw Candida off the deep end. Her jumpy dash for the front door 
was squashed by Eileen and Norwood. Those two pinned her down as Windsor used handcuffs to secure her hands and feet. Blythe stuck a light sedative through Candida's blazer and into her upper arm muscle. That shot relaxed her emotional throw to an equally painful one that was calmer and quieter. Telling Eileen and Norwood to kneel Candida, Dina roughly seized her jaw, chuckled at the suffering she could barely express, and told her that she's here to stay now that she's entered her world. She explained to Candida that it was in her best interest to take what she's got coming like a good little girl. Dina gave her brother, Dean Malio Jr., a breathy, happy phone call, telling him that she's got someone whom he and the others would be fools not to have in their ranks. Dean asked her what bloodline was her new prospect a member of. Dina told him that this new person was a descendant of Habsburgle Sr. That excited Dean into telling her that his associates will be at her doorstep in a short while. Before hanging up, Dina asked him how their brothers Mosley and Turnbull were holding up. The answer Dean gave her was that they were still in hiding, but doing well, given all the ex-captees who want to kill them how they did to their loved ones. His brothers minced no words in telling him and Dina not to visit them until they tell them that it's safe to do so when or if that time comes, beating her head with that request particularly hard because of her past tendencies. She gave him and had him give them her vow that she won't let that near disaster happen again. Having promised that, Dina couldn't help but centrally yearn for the days when she and her brothers could stay within each other's eyesights for days on end. Dean felt her pain as it was his as well, but said that those days were behind them and won't be theirs to relive for the foreseeable future. He hung up after telling Dina that it's for the best that they maintain the distant amicable relationship they currently have. That hang-up turned out all the lights, made it so that only the air's hum could be heard, and had the street lights be what kept the hall and rooms out of the pitch dark. Candida was put in a moonless corner, still handcuffed with tied ropes securing her limbs and her mouth shutted by duct tape as she whimpered punily and babyishly. Leaning on the hallway walls, the six waited for the comrades Dean sent to pick Candida up to arrive. Dina whispered to her friends the questions of if they're carrying a torch for her and would they exit life and enter death to do so. Her friends were in utter shock, never before picturing a thought concerning that but then a banging knock on the door stopped them from thinking that over. The six's shoes soundlessly and cautiously removed, Dina 
inched over to the door and saw Flavio Jr. and Manola Carlos, a sibling duo she's had a number of encounters with. Flavio had Manola go around back while he stayed on guard at the front. Dina peeked through the door's eye hole and quickly hid beside it as he glaringly did the same. Dina hushedly scurried back to the hallway and messaged her friends that two of the chickens they raised had come home wanting to roost. The sounds of Manola forcing her way to the back door and Flavio getting ready to breach the front put their anti-burglary protocol in play. And shortly after, those two roost wanters broke and entered with one task at hand, croak their ex-maltreaters. Flavio looked dead at the hallway, whipped out his gun and screamed for the six to wake up, come on out and face their fates, or he'll come in there and make their deaths slow and painful. Getting no response, he kicked his way into the four bedrooms and found them neither in bed or in the closets, making him believe that they're in the garage where he's positive Manola has them trembling under her gun's muzzle. Pacing on her toes tips, all Manola could see was the garage's pitch black blankness. Her blood flowed at decibels high enough for her ears to catch wave of. She shrugged off her fanatophobia as just being her imagination as Flavio would say any time it hit. Manola's backwards walk to the near center ran her into Blythe's lovable word of welcome. She there and then turned a panicky 180 and held her at gunpoint. Blythe met Manola's shivery orders to get down and pinned her face on the floor with rocking arms behind her back. Crossed legs and a shy grin with its lips sucked in. Blythe shook her head as Norwood crept up on her, crowbar in hands. Flavio looked out the window at the backyard, spotting a tool shed with its doors shaking back and forth and bloating out. That sight showed him the six's hiding place to its blood-shedding eagerness, or so he fought. His turn and step onto the hallway was met with a blunt, echoing blow and Manola letting out a scream that made his skin crawl. Her cries for Flavio's help startled him into darting for the garage, only to crash into Eileen's swing of her steel frying pan. Keller and Windsor tried to pin him down how she and Norwood confined Candida earlier. But Flavio's abnormally tough head allowed him to slip her through their attempted bind, having a set to with them and Eileen. His haymaker to Eileen's nose bursted its blood vessels, causing her pain to come yelling out. Her dwelling howls provoked the other two to bullishly charge at him. Flavio threw Keller spine first onto the table's side and bounced Windsor's back flat on its top. The injury Eileen 
could feel and taste drove her screaming mad, halting Flavio's run to the garage door by firing a bullet that blew his spinal cord in half. She and the guys stormily jumped back up and made Candida's binds belong to him also. The garage's pitch black harshly brighted away to reveal a concrete cubicle spreading its blood-stained blankness in front of its walls, ceiling, and floor proper. Manola and Candida sat strapped to its built-in chairs as Blythe and Norwood austerely stood inches behind. While Candida was too demoralized to talk, Manola had no problem voicing out her assurance that the six won't see her or Flavio ever again if they let them go. Dina satanically chuckled her scoff, miffed that she'd so shamelessly insult her intelligence. In her mind, Manola was still the frightful, impressionable little girl she knew and walked all over back in the day. For all her qualities, Dina still saw her as a mind that could be changed, unlike Flavio, thanks to reasons they devastatingly knew and lived through. The doors opening plopped him on down like a slaughtered carcass breaking off a conveyor hook. His severe injuries got Manola in a fluster that brutalized her worse than the agonies, rendering him all but immobile. The laugh Dina had was made brief by Eileen's broken nose, Keller's swollen bruises, and Windsor's concussed gait. She stonily had those three put Flavio to his knees and direct his face at her. His face was a triple-digit, heated viper, hungry for a kill. For Dina, it was a look precisely three years in age, yet as fresh as ever in her mind. She never, ever forgot the unpardonable act he perpetrated before her very eyes. If Flavio's penitence was any smaller, it would be too minuscule to see for even the most advanced microscope. That act raised his view of himself to heights never seen, earning him honors that made losing those role models he looked up to the least bit fruitful. This wasn't to say that Flavio was an insurgent fighting Yellow Cross tyranny. In actual fact, the early lives he and Dina had came and went in like manner. What made him and his sisters different were that they found an epiphany their peers never discovered. That insight Flavio became aware of comforted him into standing by his change of heart. His disparaging smile liquefied Dina's stony look to a quiver breaking tears out of her pink eyes, rolling them down her cheeks and around her snarling, clenched teeth, her self-control going bang in a yapping pressure wave. Dina fatally shot Flavio to pieces in a lead spray that unloaded, reloaded, and emptied again. 
before Manola or Candida could deeply shriek out their sorrow. She unhingedly ranted about the spray being for everything he took away from her. She hammered that point again and again, dropping on all fours and under a furiously hyperventilating spell. Looking on, her friends were stuck in between their desire to uphold their fidelity for her and the decree that devotion has twisted their arms in. Manola's sniveling and Candida's weeping ruffled Dina's slow jump back up. They barraged her mentally possessed approach with blaring, death-fearing nays. Dina took a second gun out and aimed it, and the first one betwixt both their eyes. She stared into them and roared her panting until her composure came slowing back. Dina elucidated to Manola and Candida how lucky they were that their glimmers of hope still had life in them, adding that they'd be smart to have Flavio's fate be their reason to embrace the training they're going to get down to. Beginning the moment that a heavy van arrived and with Dina striking them unconscious with her guns' barrels. The six unstrapped them and bore their limp bodies out of the cubicle, handing them over to Dean's subordinates. No questions asked or words said. Those underlings nonchalantly stuffed them and themselves in the van and departed for who knows where. It wasn't until the twilight had turned astronomical that the six recognized the gravity of Flavio's killing. Keller asked what on God's green earth did he and his friends just do, adding that there was no going back from what's decaying in their presence. Until that night, those six had never taken a life starting and developing theirs in Lobotown, which put them in a bubble that knew nothing of the mayhem and anguish that clattered around the clock. And even if they did kill, the power that formerly prevailed would have shielded them from any accountability. But now that democracy has risen again, that immunity was as finished as the power it took out. Norwood stated that the cops and the jackals who hired Flavio and Manola will inevitably be on their tail. Eileen declared that she and the others have entered that all-too-familiar game. Dina proclaimed that entry as their provocation for enacting their red binders. No thoughts needed to occur for her friends to know exactly what she was talking about. Those binders were a revenge two very special people crafted for the six to unleash. They contained the identities of every person who partook or were complicit in the actions that brought their old lives to naught. As a whole, the names listed were members of the professional managerial class that ruled Brumelia and its liberalism at that time. Dina said that to urinate this duty through their hands may as well be them 
vitiating their nation of birth and the elders who gave their heyday its rise. Her friends listening steadfastly, she sermonized their duty to do whatever it took to fulfill the wish those special people made as their final rests neared, stirring up their appetites for wiping out. Dina jiffy-cutted on her palm a fine asterisk with a nicely sketched R on the symbol, using her determination to numb the pain. Her friends gave themselves the same cuttings, fending off their discomforts with their self-regards. And by and by, blood soaked the six's hands like those dunked in big cans of ketchup showcasing them as being six from Rusalka no more, and now and forever the Rusalka six. The six amalgamated their hands in a blood-soaked clasp, pontificating in detail about sicking their rage on the scoundrels who've made their society eat excrement for a culture that was perfectly fine. They proclaimed that Sinclair's demeaning force-feeding will be tolerated no longer, that it's time they settle his holier-than-thou hash. The Six couldn't wait to bring him and his allies to a mercy-begging heel. And so their terror touched down, commencing a path of destruction that would send the normalcy the mainland had enjoyed fishtailing. It would hit the nerves of its residents and bromelians abroad, breathing new life to the instincts that were thought to have been buried by the Yellow Cross's defeat nearly three years ago. And as fate would have it, that revival would be an undercurrent for the precedents made thereafter. And that was the Rusalka Six, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic. <laughs>